Hi, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm so glad you are here today. Today, my guest is Jessica Billingsley. She is the CEO and chairman of Akerna, which is a software as a service ag tech company serving the cannabis, hemp, and CBD industry. And she is a total freaking rock star. I know Jessica through YPO. We are in a women's business network forum together. We were in the same chapter several years ago. So I've gotten to know her quite well and just absolutely admire and adore her. She has been recognized with numerous awards, including the Titan 100 CEO, Top 100 Female Founder, and Fortune's Most Promising Woman Entrepreneur. Her thought leadership has been featured in prominent media outlets, including Business Insider, Bloomberg, CNN, Fortune, Forbes, and so many more. She's also a contributor to Entrepreneur and Rolling Stone Publications. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to take a company public, what it's like to be a woman in tech and how she supports women in tech. And then we get into the heart of the interview, which is about rock climbing. Jessica is an avid climber. She's been climbing for decades. In fact, she aspired once to be a professional climber, which she'll talk about in the interview. And she shares how climbing taught her how to be a better leader and how to roll with the punches uh, when you're growing a business. Hang tight, and I'll be right back with Jessica. All right, everyone. I am back with my good, good friend, Jessica Billingsley. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Oh, this is so fun. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So before we jump into your story and, and the fun topic we're going to talk about today, I would love to hear in your words um, what Akerna is, why you started it, you know, where you're at right now. Give us a little bit of context. Oh, sure thing. So my background is technical. And uh, I guess uh, well over a decade ago now, I uh, saw a really interesting problem facing the legal cannabis industry. And, and that was, hey, how are we going to responsibly track and regulate this? And how can people have confidence and, and know what they're putting in and on their bodies? And so I founded Akerna as the, the answer to that problem. How do we track and, and responsibly regulate this and ensure compliance uh, with state and federal laws. And uh, we're still doing that today. The business has, has grown and evolved and expanded to over 14 countries and multiple languages and nearly every uh, legal market in the U.S. and Canada. And we've actually recently announced our, the sale of our software business to a strategic yeah, congratulations. And what is your plan after that? I mean, are you going to stay on the board? What does that look like? So we're actually selling our software business to another public company. Uh, and so in, in a new business, a carbon-friendly uh, Bitcoin miner, uh, Griffin Digital Mining, is going to take our listing and I'll stay on the board of that company and do a little bit of board and advisory work and, and think about what I want to do next. Yeah. And you took your your company public. Uh, what was that like? It's such a wild ride to lead up to and to actually stand there and, and ring the bell on NASDAQ. That was a, an incredibly fulfilling, rewarding, and fun experience. And what's in some ways, what's interesting about it is, is it feels like this final finish line. And then you get there and, and, 
And it's this reset of, no, now this is the starting line of who we are as a public company. <laughs> and then how do we how do we do that now? And which we've we've navigated for four years and it's been its own wild ride. Yeah, I can only imagine what it's like. Uh, well, here's to pivoting and transitions. They are always a uh, part of life. And I look forward to uh, learning more about what you're going to do next. Um, but I do have a couple of other questions before we jump into your story, because I know you're a rock climber and we're going to talk about that. But something uh, that I know that you speak about and are passionate about are women in tech. And there's not a whole lot of us out there. Uh, so can you can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that is like, you know, running a tech company, maybe where did you ever feel like you were an underdog or that you weren't respected because you are a woman in tech and there's so few people? Tell us a little bit about that. Gosh, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, as I know it is to yours. And I've thought a lot about what has this been a challenge for me, when and how, and what are some things that I can do in this position of power in which I find myself today? How can I help other women? And ultimately, I don't have the answer to whether it's been a problem. I mean, I can certainly point to, hey, there, here are all the times where I experienced something that you know, I don't think a man would have experienced, but has it ever held me back? I'm not sure. I was the first in my category and there were, I, there were male entrants that entered the category as a, a second mover or a third or fourth mover. And they certainly all raised at higher valuations. But was that because they were male and I was female or was that because I was doing it first and was having to have somebody invest in a brand new idea versus in an idea somebody else was doing that I had already proven would work? It's a, it's a tricky question and there's, there's no answer. There's no easy answer. And as it relates to women in technology, I actually find the piece of that problem really interesting, not the women in STEM piece, although I'm, that is important and there are many organizations that work on that. I'm interested in this piece of women who drop out. So yeah. even once you attract women to STEM, 56%, 56%, that's a staggering percentage, drop out in the first 10 years. And there's no great statistics around why that is. So we can only have theories. It's probably much of it, at least in my personal anecdotal experience related to culture and, and the, oh, actually, <laughs> it doesn't get any easier. And there aren't magically lots more women to work with. This is my culture day in, day out. And I'm working predominantly with men. And I think that for many women, even after they've been attracted to it, even after they have chosen to pursue a STEM career, even after they've been hired at a company to work in STEM, that that cultural piece can be really challenging. And so I've been really interested and really focused on how do we help keep that 56% in that we've already attracted <laughs> to the field. And I've launched this uh, corporate social responsibility campaign called the One Woman Challenge around, hey, just help one woman. Yeah. Help, help one. And, and this is not something that only other women can help right. women. Hey, anybody can help one woman. Make an introduction, hold a mentoring session, 
all those, it may seem like little drops in a bucket, all those individual acts, but those drops can become the swell of real change. I agree. One of the things I'm really proud of at Stone Age is that half of our executive leadership team um, are women uh, and we have women in management positions. We're not quite at half. We've got female mechanics. We've got female uh, assemblers. And I'm so proud of that. And I, I think your point is right. I know it's because I have specifically chosen to invest in other women and give women a chance where maybe, you know, others wouldn't have because of the opportunities that, that I was given uh, when I was much younger as well. And especially in a male-dominated industry, like it's hard to attract w- women. I mean, you know, cannabis is more glamorous than industrial cleaning, but it's still a challenge nonetheless. But I do think that because we are so intentional, it has moved the needle. And so I'm wondering like about that in your experience, like what are some of the things that you did within your company um, that really did move the needle that other leaders could could learn from? I think the single biggest thing that we move the needle, especially at the individual contributor level, I, I found that this didn't work as well in management and leadership, but at the individual contributor level, very early on, we created the concept of a full-time 30-hour work week. Yeah. So the intention was, and it wasn't only male or only female, but we had mostly females take advantage of it. They were mostly women who had school-aged children or small children uh, with childcare that wanted to spend more time with the family or had more family demands. And they, the way that we did that is we gave them full benefits. We paid them 75% a a standard engineer salary. And we set their metrics at 75% of a standard engineer salary. And so that doesn't equate to, it's not 30 hours punch in, punch out. It's get your 75% of the job done. But we certainly had a number of women who took advantage of that. And we had some really great engineers that then stayed in the workforce that would not have otherwise stayed in the workforce. And we're able to, I, you know, I think it was a win-win. I think we got a great deal. I think they got a great deal. And we became known as a really great family-friendly place to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I know a lot of leaders would say, but how do you make that work from the bottom line perspective? So mostly where this was successful was with our female engineers. And these, I mean, frankly, we got talent that might have been paid a lot more to have a job somewhere else and who often produced as much as some of my full-time engineers, but they were able to really constrain their hours, their schedule, their scope of work, and that was worth it to them. And it really, it, it, it proved to be very successful for us in that we often got a more senior level person for, for that trade-off. And Probably, I would say, not just code production, but some better architecture in terms of how things were built. So it wasn't exactly a one-to-one in terms of how successful it was. Um, because as you think about it, yes, 75%, you're still paying full benefits. So it still actually costs a little bit more <laughs> than if you have a, a full-time person doing that. We also did not ever have anyone who did that who did not ultimately convert to full-time. You know, as so these were people who stayed with us for a long time. You got that tribal knowledge, that longevity. 
as their kids got older, they said, yeah, actually, I think I could work a little bit more and make a little bit more money. And my kids, you know, can walk themselves home from the school bus now kind of thing. Wow. That's really an amazing program you put together there and very inspiring. I think more leaders should consider doing things like this to be able to attract and keep women in tech. It's such a, an important part of our future strategy. And I'm, I'm really happy that it was so successful for you. So now I want to transition into the topic of this podcast, and that is climbing and leadership. So could you share with me um, a little bit about your passion for rock climbing? Uh, well, it's it's my my great love outside of, of family and business and I would say a great enduring love, something that I fell in love with in my teenage years and have left for brief periods of time and have returned to again and again and again and again and again. I've thought about this a lot because certainly through one lens, you could say that, and, and I certainly have at some points in time, I'm like, this is kind of a selfish pursuit. <laughs> what, you know, how does this help anybody in the world? How does it do anything for anyone? And I have, I've really come to a good place with that for myself, that what it does for me is it helps me to immediately find that flow state. It's the fastest way I can possibly get there. You can meditate for hours. You can do yoga for hours. You could do all these other things. And sometimes you get that click, you click into that flow state. And for me, when I'm climbing, when you're on the wall and you're only 100% in this right brain world, it happens immediately where your brain, the, the words, logical left side of your brain shuts off and you live in this spatial flow state. And what I have found is that the value of being able to reach that easily has paid dividends to me in the rest of my life. And I've accepted that it's worth it for that, for me to be able to go and to experience that and be able to, to take some of that back, back to life, back to business. I mean, there are certainly uh, and I know we're going to talk about this, but lessons learned and that, well, you know, sometimes it's hard. <laughs> sometimes you don't achieve what you think you're going to achieve. And how do you think about that on a climb? How do you problem solve? And, and what, when I'm working on something, a business problem, sometimes thinking about it through that lens is helpful. So can you tell us a little bit about what climbing has taught you about leadership and running a company? I think the biggest lesson is this thing we call the sharp end of the rope in climbing. So the person who goes first, who places the gear, who literally puts up the rope for the people who come behind, that person is called the leader. And that person takes the greatest risk because they can, when you place a piece of gear, you can fall double, however far past you are past that piece of gear. So if you've climbed five feet past your piece of gear, your maximum fall is a fall of 10 feet. You know, if you've climbed farther, you, you know, so on and so forth. And that, so for the leader, that's called being on the sharp end of the rope and you take, you take all and most of the risk. And that is directly correlated to business. 
when you're the leader of an organization, when you're the leader of a team, it's your decisions, it's your responsibility, it's your risk. You can't blame it on anyone else. It's it's all on you. And part of that is being willing to step up and say, I take this risk and I am willing to risk the fall. I am willing to risk not being able to put the rope on top of this climb. And that all directly correlates to business. And the pressure of that and, and knowing you can do it and knowing that sometimes you do fall. Yeah. And you have to, and then you have to do the work of climbing back up to where you were before you fell and then still being willing to climb past that. That's, that's tricky. And at the end of the day, climbing like business is a mental game. And it's all about creating that mental resilience and fortitude and cultivating, really cultivating being able to think about climbing, not think about falling. Yeah. And to say that a different way, the way that we say it in business is, you know, think, play to win rather than playing not to lose. So what is the toughest climb you've ever done? So this is not the toughest number on a climb I've ever done, but I think the hardest climb I've ever done in my entire climbing career was this, this uh, unbelievable granite spire that I climbed in the middle of the Namib desert in Namibia. I climbed it with two very experienced climbing partners, both very famous for establishing new routes. This is a, a granite plug that's not 6,000 feet. There's nothing else around it. It just sticks out of the Namib Desert. And as we were approaching the, the area for the climb the night before, there was a lightning storm. And because it's the only thing sticking up out of the desert, you just saw it get hit by lightning over and over and over again. And luckily, we had really nice uh, nice weather and a nice window uh, when we attempted our climb. But the what's what was interesting about it from a, a couple of respects, it hasn't been done very many times. And if you go do a big wall in Yosemite, uh, if you do not succeed, a helicopter just comes and like picks you up off the wall. You're you're fine. It's not. <laughs> yes, it's committing. Yes, you can get hurt. Of course. You know, if you choose to do it without any gear, you're certainly risking ultimate, uh, the, the paying the ultimate price if you don't succeed. For most of us, we're climbing with gear, we're climbing with ropes, and somewhere like the Namib Desert, there is no rescue. <laughs> you, yeah. But if you embark on a climb like that, you literally have to get to the top. And we we were very committed on this climb that had only been done by a few other parties. And all the other parties had climbed it in what's called big wall style with lots of bags, lots of gear, porta ledges to sleep on, multi days to multiple days to climb this climb. And so when you bring all of that gear, it takes you a lot longer because you have to haul up every single piece of gear as you get to each stopping point along the climb. And we chose to attempt this climb in a 24 hour push. So you start at midnight the night before and you try to attempt climbing it in a 24-hour push light and fast so you don't have to bring any of that stuff to sleep on. Um, I just, I have so many memories of that climb. There, <laughs> there was one rest on this entire climb. This one rest, probably 1,500 feet up this climb. There was one 
ledge. And that ledge, at this point in time, it was a We're in the middle of the Namib desert. The sun was hot. And there was this one little tiny scraggly tree and we're all taking turns trying to crouch under it and, and get a little bit of rest. And the, the next hundred or so feet of climbing were what's called the crux uh, on a climb or the hardest part of the climb. And we were all kind of looking at each other going, who's, who's going to do something the next? Who's going to take the sharp end of the rope? Who's going to lead? this next pitch. And my partner, I was with two partners. One uh, was a good bit younger, in better shape, had been doing most of the leading, and you could just see he didn't mentally have it. And the other partner I climbed with, famous for putting up climbs all over the southeastern United States. However, at this point in time, he's got two brand new toddlers, twins, and he looks like maybe he was the one who had been pregnant. <laughs> he was not in shape at all. And in our days of like practice climbing leading up to this climb, that was apparent that he was, he was not in his best climbing shape. But, you know, there we were 100% committed. We had to finish this climb or there was no way down. And he just stood up and started putting gear on his harness and said, I got this one, y'all. I'm going to lead it. And I have, I have never before or since been so happy for someone else to take the sharp end of the rope. Yeah. And I also learned what made him so famous. It, 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 it all came to, it wasn't his physical ability. It was his mental ability to flip that switch and allow no other possibility, but I will do this. I will succeed. I will put this up and we will finish this climb. And I'm sure he was motivated to get back to those little kids. Wow. What a story. And, you know, I think experience probably plays a lot into that too. Like I know something that you talk about a lot is, you know, when you're in these really tough challenges in business or you always want your best people to lead those and their best people are going to be people with experience. And so I'm, I'm sure that played a lot into it too. It's like, even though I'm not in shape, like I know how to do this. I know how to do this. Is that what you experienced with him? A hundred percent. It's, uh -huh. there's a cheesy line from a country song that actually climbers talk about. And it's, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. <laughs> because you know, in your head, you know how to do it. Your body remembers you. You can, you can, you can do it for a hundred feet. Yeah. And, you know, the only way to get good at doing hard things is to do hard things. And all of that practice, the, the decades of practice, it leads you up to the moment of even when it's like, ooh, you know, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I have been. I can trust that practice and, and all those times getting outside of comfort zones, it gets you to that place where like, you can do it, you know, you can do it, even though it's really scary. And boy, isn't that just such a good analogy for life? It is for life, for business, for yeah. all of it to say, you know, I've, we can, what's the, what's the quote from, um, I'm not thinking of the author's name, but we can do hard things. Glennon Doyle. 
That's right. Glennon Doyle. Glennon Doyle. <laughs> we can do we can do hard things. We can do hard things. That's for sure. That's for sure. And you talk a lot about partners and and obviously in climbing, you have to have a partner you can trust. Like you can't become great without other people. What has climbing taught you about team building and relationship building and developing really deep, meaningful trust with your teammates, with your partners? Ooh, all of those things. And the most important thing is to show up. Mm -hmm. The most important thing is to show up and to be a steady hand and continue to be willing to belay each other and try. That seems so simple. It seems like the lowest common denominator. And yet somehow it's the hardest thing to consistently do. It's it's my number one requirement or ask for climbing partners is, is we make plans and you show up when we make some plans. But that's true for everything. It's true for, if you think about, I think about in my leadership role, how many times, it's not about somebody showing up for a meeting, but saying, committing to doing something and not having an excuse for why you didn't get it done, but but doing it, that mm -hmm. committing. And that that commitment is almost half of the battle. Showing up at the bottom of a climb and committing and getting on it, at that point, that's that's half of it. It's just being willing to put yourself in the right place to show up and to do the work. And beyond that, it's really interesting. I have I have found that some of my very best, longest, most enduring climbing partner relationships have not necessarily been my best friends or my, you know, dearest social uh, acquaintances. There's there, and that correlates to business too. It's well, we do this work together. We do this together really, really well. And there's a mutual level of respect and trust at each point along the way. Not necessarily the person whose stories you enjoy hearing the most. Mm -hmm. Not all the time. Yep. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with one of my employees um, about liking teammates. And I said, you know, like is an added benefit. And liking people and having people like you certainly makes things easier. But it is not a prerequisite for success in the workplace. I think a lot of people get confused with that. Like, I have to like these people if it's going to be effective. And that's just simply not true. It's simply not true. Mm -hmm. It's simply not true. I think maybe the other interesting thing that's important for us to remember as leaders, kind of circling back, it, it, as far as it relates to trust and mm -hmm. respect and leadership and, and climbing, being the leader, being on that sharp end of the rope, there, it's there's no point in doing it by yourself. Sure, they made the movie about that one guy who does, but most of the time he doesn't climb by himself either. <laughs> and most of the time, you know, this is a this is something that is dependent upon relationships. And when you take the sharp end, when you put the rope up, you are quite literally paving the way and making it easier for those who come behind you. And there's a lesson in there around. 
being willing to take turns and to take turns on the sharp end and to help each other to get up that next piece that 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 next uh, that next summit if you will that next pitch uh, whatever word we want to attach to it it's so easy to see the correlation with the the fortitude and the the mental toughness that you that you developed um, as a climber. I'm sure you had some of that anyway, because climbing is a fairly extreme sport. But what advice do you have for people, you know, who maybe don't put themselves in such extreme situations? Um, what are ways that they can build their their fortitude, their mental strength? I mean, you know, what 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 advice do you have? I think maybe reiterating, just show up. So much of it is showing up. Yeah. And and then second, that that idea, as we say in climbing, we say it all the time, think about climbing. And what we mean is think about the climbing, don't think about falling. Because if you're thinking about the falling, you 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 cannot succeed. Yep. You will not be, you will literally be paralyzed and not able to make the next moves if you're thinking about the potential of falling. You have to be only thinking about the potential for climbing and ideally you have created some piece of protection for yourself where the consequences are not so dire if you do fall if you fall something catches you you you'll be okay you climb back up try again but you can't be thinking that way when you're in the middle of it and i think that that correlation is the number one biggest direct correlation to business, it's fine to put the safety net in place. Yep. It's fine to make sure that if this doesn't work out, that you have your gear in place, your fallback plan, your <laughs> what what happens if you don't succeed. But you can't make good decisions if you're thinking defensively, yep. if you're thinking about failing, if you're thinking about playing not to lose versus creatively thinking about how to win. Yep. I love that. You know, I think action is such an important piece of that too. You know, that that showing up, the taking action. Um, I ride mountain bikes a lot and uh and and dirt bikes. And it's so counterintuitive when you see something that you're scared to go over, you want to like pull back, but you always pedal, you know, pedal, 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 or push the throttle and go. And, you know, a lot of people are, it's scary to do that. It's scary to think like, oh, I might lose control if I go for it, but it is the only way to get over a rock, you know, to, to get over a tree stump, to, to do that hard thing. You know, I tell myself a lot, a lot too, is when I'm doing something that's hard and it feels a little scary, it's like, nope, just pedal. Just put the throttle on a little bit more and you will get through it a lot easier, but you have to get over, over that fear. Um, Cause otherwise you're right. You either stop and you don't do it or you're going too slow and you, and you fall <laughs> and you fall anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, as the saying goes, like, you know, whatever you think, you know, if you think you can do it or you think you can't, it will be true. Uh, and our thoughts are such powerful powerful aspects of creating the life that we want and getting through those tough times. And I think that you've, you've, you've definitely given us so much insight on how learning how to be a world-class climber can relate to being a world-class leader. Well, thank you. This has been a really fun conversation and I get to talk about both my passions. I know, right? <laughs> 
Uh, if somebody wanted to find you, how could they, how, do, how should they find you? Uh, so I am Jessica uh, Billingsley on LinkedIn. Um, I also have, uh, I think I have a webpage up at jessicabillingsley.com, but uh, at LinkedIn, I'm most active on. And then I also have a Twitter handle, Jess uh, Billingsley uh, Twitter. Perfect. I'll include we'll all make sure that we send all that. Yeah. yeah, perfect. We'll include all in the show notes. Well, Jessica, it has been such a delight to have you on the show. Thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in this transaction. And for whatever comes next, I'm sure it's going to be exciting. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thanks for having me. And yeah. uh, look forward to talking soon. Thanks. All right. Hang tight, everybody. I'll be right back. All right, everyone, I am back. I hope you enjoyed that fun interview. She is such a great person. I am so honored to call Jessica my friend. All right, with that, I will leave you to the rest of your day. I look forward to hosting you on next week's episode of Reflect Forward. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe to it, rate it, share it with a friend. I always appreciate it. You can also catch my advice from a CEO episode on YouTube. Just Google Reflect Forward, Carrie Siggins, and you'll be able to find it. It always helps with the algorithms, and I appreciate your support. Thanks so much. See you next week.